I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female, where every week I speak with women changemakers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. This week, my guest is Koa Beck, acclaimed author of the best-selling book, Why Feminists, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and What They Leave Behind, published in January. Koa is the former editor-in-chief of Jezebel, and she was previously the executive director of Vogue.com and senior features editor at MaryClaire.com. In 2019, she was awarded a John Shorenstein Fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School, and she published an academic paper entitled Self-Optimization in the Face of Patriarchy, How Mainstream women's media facilitates white feminism, which led her to write White Feminist. In her book, she explores how our society has commodified feminism and continues to systematically shut out women of color. Here is our conversation. Koa, it's a pleasure speaking with you today, especially as I have been uh, reading the last half of your book over the last week in preparation for this interview. So I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. I'm uh, so grateful for this invitation, Ava. So thank you for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. And I always start by going back in time a little bit. So asking you growing up uh, as a young girl, what did you dream of doing uh, as, as a career later in life? And did you already think you'd have a future in journalism and writing? Um, or was were you attracted by something completely different? I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, that was my first, I think, conscious thought is I want to write. I want to write things down. I want to write stories. I want to build stories. Um, I didn't think of it, you know, at that age as like narrative. But when I think about, you know, what has intersected a lot of my career, it is narrative. It is building narrative, especially for things that have happened or are currently happening and need a narrative structure for people to understand. Um, I started writing things down as early as five years old. Um, I used to write, uh, I used to staple pages, uh, like, like printer paper together and make, you know, books. So I would like draw a picture on one side and then like write out what was happening on the other basically mimicking you know like books for children anyway um mm -hmm. and i've kept a diary actually since i was five years old i was always writing down like observations or things that my parents would say or you know things in my family or like animals things like that um and I was uh, I was aware of of journalism um, because my grandfather was a journalist. Um, he worked mm -hmm. for CBS News here in America for 34 years, and he was he was long retired by the time I came along. But I was aware that you know he had had this career basically like producing and reporting, and he he primarily worked in television. Um, which I, you know, as I got a little older and started working, you know, professionally in mainstream women's media, there were some distinct parallels in that, you know, around the time I started working professionally, social media was this new thing. And all these brands were mm -hmm. like, what is this? We don't know how it works. And I see a distinct parallel with my grandfather's career because when he was starting to work, television was the new flashy thing and nobody really knew how that right. worked <laughs> and how to like build narrative or even like inform people, you know, across television. Mm -hmm. That was a new venture. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to write, but at various places 
Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't quite sure necessarily if I would be like, uh, and this is going way back to when I was really little, like a journalist or like a, you know, like a fiction writer, for instance, like I knew I liked writing about current events, but I didn't necessarily know what, you know, form that would take, especially being very little. Um, I always, my first and biggest, like foremost ambition was I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to grow up and be. Toni Morrison. <laughs> um, and I mean, good lofty goal. <laughs> and when I think about like my family, you know, was very, um, a very big advocate of public libraries. And I have a really fond memory of getting my first library card, you know, when I was like eight. And um, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of like, you know, writing things down and then, you know, looking up and seeing like, oh, if you write things down, then they go on books on a shelf that you can take down and then other people read them. So I was aware of that. But then when I got to be like a teenager, then I definitely became more um, uh, interested in journalism as like something that perhaps I would go into or like find my way into, you know, in some capacity um, while maintaining, you know, the the fiction. And then um, around the time I graduated college, I knew that I wanted to write, you know, in a professional capacity and journalism seemed like in some ways a viable way to do that. <laughs> And tell me, so you eventually uh, got to Vogue and uh, obviously had, you know, a, a stint in, in fashion uh, uh, writing. And I'd love to hear about that experience, uh, you know, the the good, the bad and what made you want to transition. Sure. So I, I mean, um, an interesting thing about my career is that even though I've worked in a lot of mainstream women's publications, um, my background isn't in fashion. Uh, my background mm -hmm. isn't in beauty. My background isn't in um, necessarily like uh, lifestyle, you know, re reporting. Um, I uh, and I get into this a lot in my book. I mean, I was always drawn to cultural analysis of gender, identity politics, race, like queer topics. But around the time that I started, you know, trying to write professionally, um, quote unquote, feminism, you know, however you're interpreting that on the spectrum, that was suddenly like a very in thing. <laughs> um, to, to the point where, you know, a lot of mainstream women's publications that otherwise, you know, would have eschewed a term like feminism or tried to bury it or, you know, not go anywhere near it. All of a sudden they, they were putting feminism in headlines and talking about like the, the feminism, again, however you're interpreting that, of like very high profile influential women. And so suddenly like the things that I was interested in and that I wanted to explore in my career was viable in these mainstream women's platforms, which even, you know, like five years before, I wouldn't have thought that I would end up at some place like Mary Claire or Vogue, given <laughs> what I'm interested in doing. Um, having said that, though, when uh, the, the first uh, big mainstream women's publication I worked for was Mary Claire, and I was a senior features editor, which I loved very much because uh, I love again, like long form reporting, long form storytelling. Um, I got a lot of opportunities to work with writers I really admired and to essentially like hire them to do really long lead stories um, and and do like incredible deep dives into all kinds of topics, you know, whether we're talking about like addiction or, you know, like skin bleaching or these like really incredible like cultural topics, authors, books, that sort of thing. And then um, 
Vogue uh, came calling. They courted me for this role. Um, and it was a very big, you know, step up, I would say, in terms of my career and that um, it was an executive editor role. And I would be in charge of managing 65 uh, full-time staffers on the Vogue digital team. And this would be across, you know, beauty, fashion, lifestyle, culture, all kinds of things. And again, you know, like my career has really been in women's media. So it's like, even though those aren't really my lanes necessarily, like what I report on, um, I know how a lot of that reporting works. I know how a lot of that content works. I know like, you know, the, uh, sort of like benchmarks for producing content like that, what people like to click on, what they don't like to click on. So it was a huge step up in terms of seniority, um, but limiting in terms of, you know, what I wanted to explore on a platform like Vogue was, you know, not supported in a platform like Vogue. <laughs> and I think that's really telling, you know, in terms of like, I've always been very pragmatic in my career, even in doing this book where I think about, you know, the platforms that are accessible to me, the scope of what I can explore with those resources and then the audience that I can talk to, right? Like that has way more weight to me than anything else. But even in, you know, achieving some of these powerful roles and sitting there, it's not as easy as like just getting the job and then sitting there and like making the decision. Like I was put in positions where I had to persuade, you know, all kinds of people of different topics I wanted to explore, different um, maneuvers for, you know, doing things like awards coverage or like fashion week or stuff like that. Um, and it isn't just you. Like I had to try and persuade, you know, legacy members of Vogue and it's not easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and in, in your book, you make a mention of, um, I think it was during your time at Marie Claire where you would pitch, you know, certain ideas for stories and they would always get back to you with just the word niche. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And whenever you want to talk about, you know, issues, women's issues specifically, and something that had to do with putting a spotlight on something like violence against women or, you know, something of the sort, and it wasn't always welcome. Yeah, very much so. And I, I, I think that's where, you know, the, the skill set that ultimately led to this book um, I see origins of it, you know, when I look back where it's like, you know, I'm I'm very used to in a lot of ways navigating white feminism. I feel like it's a mm -hmm. fluency that I've taken for granted in my career because I've thought about it, you know, just in terms of my career and like this very professional mm -hmm. skill set. How do I convince people who have, you know, a completely different understanding of gender equality and feminism, how do I convince them that, you know, covering immigration topics is a feminist issue, covering, you know, mm -hmm. poor women trying to afford diapers is a feminist issue, um, you know, um, harassment and assault against like lesbians by other women is a feminist issue. Um, but, you know, I in uh, doing a lot of the historical research for this book, I, I was really able to see that, you know, what I was experiencing is not unique to me at all. And in fact, um, you know, towards the latter end of my career, when I was at Jezebel, I was doing a lot more public speaking. And there mm -hmm. were these young people who kept raising their hands, you know, at these talks and asking me directly about white feminism. And I realized that, you know, these little things, you know, that I had experienced in meetings, you know, where I'm told that what I'm pitching is not right for the brand and therefore not, you know, a quote unquote gender issue or not quote unquote feminist issue. Um, there's a deep historical 
precedent of that. And so I, I, I really owed it, I think, to a lot of those people at the speaking engagements who are asking me about white feminism, but also to people who are coming after me to write down what I know about this. Um, and I think that, you know, like the anecdote you just raised, like that one to one interaction where a more senior woman who, you know, is more powerful tells you that your interpretation of feminism is niche, says a lot about what the priorities of her feminism are. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And well, first, let's talk about what uh, made you want to write the book. So you just brought up uh, several points, but was it kind of a revelation at one point? OK, these questions are being asked. It's a conversation people want to have. I have something to contribute. I'm just going to go and write a book and and quit my job. Um, <laughs> did it happen more over time? Because, I mean, you know, I think a, a lot of people have uh, book ideas some, and they're not always good. Some, a lot of people have good book ideas, but often it's that jump can be scary of making the time in our space to uh, give up everything and write. Yes and no. I mean, the the sequence you just described, yes, that is how it happened in terms of, you know, I was EIC of Jezebel. Um, in my assessment, like looking just at my own career, I had kind of more or less gone, you know, as senior as I cared to go in women's media. Mm -hmm. there, there wasn't really anything I wanted to do beyond being an EIC. I didn't want to be like an editorial director. I didn't want to work on the corporate side. I didn't want to be like on an executive team. Um, but aside from just, you know, what people were asking me and what I knew, um, I always wanted to write a book. Uh, like that was what I wanted to do, you know, as a very little girl. And I, again, you know, I achieved these amazing opportunities to tell national stories about women and non-binary people. Um, but my goal was always to exit. I didn't want to stay mm -hmm. in that industry. I wanted to leverage it to either get a book deal or be in a position where I could like write something that was, you know, very impactful. Somebody would give me like the resources to do it, which, you know, worked out with this book. Um, I was awarded a fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School to do the research of this book. But uh, it wasn't necessarily scary in the sense that I had always planned to do it in this sort of right. way. Um, I had also mm -hmm. like saved up a good amount of money. <laughs> um, I was awarded. Yes, <laughs> I was awarded a fellowship, uh, which came mm -hmm. with money, which, you know, was amazing in terms of quitting my job and then looking ahead at like bills and rent and, you know, all those pragmatic things that we all need to be aware of when we make decisions like this, assuming it even is one. Um, but uh, I did see, you know, with a lot of these younger people who were asking me about white feminism, something I had started to see in popular discourse uh, for like the last couple years of my career in media was, you know, white feminism as a term was definitely being used more. I started to hear it more in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. feminist panels and stuff that I would sit on. Um, but I started to ID like a, a very specific sort of omission in that people were talking about white feminism, you know, sort of like hurling this criticism at, you know, a really obtuse comment that like an actress would say or, you know, something like that. But nobody seemed to know exactly what it means. <laughs> um, right. And so, you know, we're we're using this term. I think I know what it means. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming the person who's asking me the question knows what it means. And yet, you know, room fulls of people, 
roomfuls of people are looking at us, probably not knowing what it means. <laughs> so yeah, I detected yeah. a real need to define it and yeah. then also source it and then put it mm -hmm. across a historical timeline so that you could understand the ways in which white feminism is completely different from many other gendered movements and feminist movements that have completely different ideologies and practices. And in a lot of sense, like that's what motivated me. Like this might be helpful to really set a working definition for people as opposed to just this like echo chamber where, you know, nobody yeah. will really raise their hand and ask like, but what is this? <laughs> This season of The Bren is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD's services for women in business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's not necessarily a popular topic, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, among women who call themselves feminists, because uh, yeah, it, it it would take a lot of uh, accountability um, to to actually look at it and and see how they you know how they are taking part in white feminism. So to let's talk about white feminism, since uh, I'm assuming that everybody who's listening to us has read your book. Um, if you had to sum up, you know, a definition for white feminism you know, why there's an issue with it? What's the elevator pitch on white feminism, basically? So I think a good place to start is just defining it up front, which I do, you know, in the introduction to set the course for the reader. Um, I define white feminism as a very specific approach to achieving gender equality that pulls considerably from colonialism, imperialism, some key pieces of white supremacy, um, as well as labor exploitation in that women accruing individual wealth and autonomy is indicative of quote unquote feminist progress as opposed to collective wins, you know, in terms of rights. Um, I would say that uh, a place where it is a very different practice than many other feminisms in my country, and I'm sure, you know, yours too, to a certain extent, um, is that it has often aimed to imbue women with these very individual skill sets to overcome systemic oppression. So a lot of anecdotes that I cite, you know, in my book to evidence this are, you know, a lot of like white collar career advice, you know, that is framed as being feminist or having like feminist goals. And yet these are very, again, like personalized wins for individual women. Also, um, our countries differ a bit in this regard, but like in my country, you know, we don't have federal paid parental leave. Um, we're one of like the last nations that doesn't have this. And so a lot of times in my country, rhetoric around, you know, feminism and white collar work and defining feminism solely as career success or like business success doesn't take into account, you know, the many women in my country 
who are recruited to make that success possible for those women because we don't have like a care system you know that's federalized at all so low-income women women of color are recruited in to you know clean take care of children assuming there are any you know take care of elders and that facilitates a lot of these other women you know who are middle class or white or straight or cis um, to then like go out and be that like lean in feminist. And so it is very much a, a feminism that is, you know, only geared towards individual gains, but also invisibilizes w women of color. Because when, you, when, when that type of ideology talks about feminism, they're not talking about, you know, the women who come in and take care of their children. They're not talking about the women who clean their floors and do their laundry and do their dishes. And so it's a very... Um, I think of white feminism is very aspirational um, in that, you know, if if you say are like a domestic worker who wants to be seen in this movement, you can't just be a domestic worker who wants, say, like, you know, a fair wage or like healthcare. You have to be a domestic worker who wants to like start her own business <laughs> or like yes, start a newsletter yes. or something like that. And then that's how you're seen as being a feminist. So white feminism, to my assessment, it doesn't really meet a lot of marginalized genders where they are. It asks them to aspire to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to bring up a conversation I just had with uh, Soraya Shamali, mm -hmm. um, the, the author, and uh, we actually use this as a, as a quote to uh, talk about our interview this week. And she addressed the issue with the term uh, women empowerment. And um, and I think that that word, which is, you know, is is so loaded, also implies that women don't have power to begin with and they need to be empowered by some third party or, you know, some some mechanism that that will then give them the power. And um, I think there is a lot, the, you know, a, a lot of women who think, you know, they 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 think they have a they want to have a pro women agenda and pro women convictions. And I think it can be confusing in some cases because they think they're doing the right thing. And it's the same for me. It's just kind of the same logic with, you know, female empowerment who can't be who shouldn't be in favor of female empowerment. Um, what is why? Why do you think it's so important to have these discussions and really look at what these terms and the, you know, the the actions behind them? Uh, are wrong? Why is it so important that we start dismantling, you know, what these definitions actually are and what these movements actually represent? Well, I think that um, an enduring facet of white feminism that continues to be successful across generations is that it indoctrinates, you know, women. And frankly, like, like you just said, you know, in some cases, women who want to be gender conscious, who want an understanding of what feminism is and what it can do. But in white feminism, a lot of this rhetoric becomes about becoming ingratiated with power structures as opposed to questioning them or critiquing them or in a lot of instances like changing them. Like when I think about, you know, my own lifetime and my own navigation of white feminism, you know, very like post 2000s, it's this enduring narrative of, you know, like 
get to the C-suite, like get the senior role, like get to the top of the corporate ladder. But where white feminism historically and even contemporary has gone silent is with the other half of that. So like assuming that's even a goal for you and that's what you want and that's how you interpret, you know, feminism or like economic security. When you get to be that president of the company or you get to, you know, be that CEO, then what? Like, are you just going to run this company in the same way with the same policies that like a cis man would have, you know, 10 years before with the same, you know, um, little to no healthcare options, like the same exploitation of freelancers, the same, you know, low wages, but then like call it feminism because like you identify as a woman. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important, like if we are talking about, you know, getting more women to the proverbial top, whatever that is, making sure that their politics when they get there reflect this very holistic understanding of oppression and exploitation and understanding the ways in which especially for white feminism like labor has really played into that in that you know work that has traditionally been deemed women's work is still very much underpaid is still very much taken advantage of um and if we are, you know, understanding feminism solely along these lines on like, you know, women just getting into power, which I don't even, you know, necessarily agree with, um, then I think it's important to consider the realities that they shape for other women when they get there. And I think that unlearning white feminism and even clocking white feminism is a good way for all genders and women of all backgrounds to really look ahead at the same goals. Because so far what white feminism has proposed is this very um, like white supremacist understanding of what feminism is. And, you know, many women in my country um, internationally, you know, they they are going to be exploited under white feminism. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I also want to bring up, so we're having this conversation during the month, the month of March, uh, just around International Women's Day. And we know that this is the time of year where every corporation, every organization is going to have some great statement about their support of women and their celebration of women. Um, and I think in the in the corporate workplace, it's often an issue because you'll see these, you know, great numbers that look very shiny on the outside about the number of uh, women executives or women employees. And then if you scratch the surface, uh, the board is composed of, you know, white men or, uh, you know, the CEO is rarely a woman in a company. And again, I'm talking about companies and not even looking at uh, the, the rest of the world outside corporate North America. Um, what is wrong with that picture? But also, what can we do uh, as as women who want to, you know, help change the narrative here and, and be truly supportive and, and not take part in, in, in white feminism? Um, how do we change this picture? Well, one of the uh, dimensions that I go into a lot of detail in my book that I think is really pertinent for understanding your exact question is seeing the ways in which, you know, quote unquote feminism, again, however you're interpreting that, um, has become a brand for a lot of companies. So when they are, you know, celebrating, for instance, like Women's History Month, or they're celebrating, you know, a, a powerful woman in their company, or they're celebrating, you know, women's rights, or supporting equal payday or whatever, feminism is 
uh, an optical campaign. It's a way for them to like make materials and like look a certain way and project an image much in the way that they would for anything else. Like it just kind of becomes marketing. Um, and the anecdotes, you know, I use for this even in my own career is like, you know, a, a lot of publications that I have worked for have championed white collar professional women, right? Like women making a lot of money in the corporate world, um, being very successful in their careers. And yet, despite, you know, myself and the teams I've worked with, putting out this content, editing it, finding these women, you know, printing all these um, guides on like how to negotiate your salary and how to like, you know, make sure that you're not being discriminated against for certain roles. The women I work with, have been terrified to ask for raises. They've been terrified to ask for time off. They've been terrified to actually like be considered for, you know, a senior position because they're afraid of, you know, the very delicate gender dynamics that determine those discussions. And, you know, that's another instance to me in which, you know, feminism is a brand. It's not something that is in the internal politics of the company. It's something they're trying to project. So my advice on that would be, you know, when you see a company, whether it's like the one you work for or, you know, one you support, one you patron, engaging in all this feminist rhetoric, you know, supporting women leaders in history, when they use a term like feminist, I would challenge you to challenge them on what that means. Like, does that mean that, you know, they have gender parity on their board? Does that mean that, you know, they don't have a high turnover of women who have children. Does that mean that, you know, women over 50 are still employed there? Does that mean that, you know, the um, women make as much as the men there? Like, I think there just needs to be heightened literacy of what feminism means because anybody can put it on a tote bag and give it to you at a conference. <laughs> um, yes. So I think just raising- or, or sell it to you for a hefty price. Exactly, yeah. So I think that, you know, spaces by which you can ask or see or demand that that rhetoric and those politics are internal to the company, I think that raises the literacy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, great advice. And um, I know you mentioned in your book as well that you've, you know, you are uh, uh, a light skinned BIPOC woman. So it's it's and you're and, and you know, you're you're a beautiful woman. So it's it's not as um, uh, it's not as scary for a, uh, a publisher, a company, a media that's interacting with you because uh, you don't look like those angry women that they might consider, you know, the bad kind of feminist, right? And you talk in the opening of your book as well about uh, the, the suffragette movement and how, uh, you know, women were well-dressed and spending a lot of money on the way they looked. And there was kind of suffragette fashion that started happening. Um, and I came across uh, an interview by, by Brute Media uh, on social media recently and uh it was it, it was made i think it was uh, a woman from copenhagen a danish woman who um uh had decided to stop uh to stop shaving and she's a woman who had uh, kind of more facial hair than than you know we would we would expect and um, I mean she and, and it was great listening to her reasons for doing it but also of course the backlash and the comments primarily from men but surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly from a lot of women as well who felt very threatened right so there's still so much around so much pressure around the way we look and how we how our actions and our uh, our political agenda will be interpreted based on, you know, the way we look. And the closer we look to a white cis person, 
uh, the safer we appear to be to most people. So again, how how do we get out of this narrative and how is it that in 2021 we haven't made more progress? Well, I think to answer the latter part of that question, I mean, again, you know, white feminism, again, as a practice and an ideology has never been about challenging. So this idea that, you know, you're for women's rights, obviously, but you're homogenizing the look of what a feminist or a suffragist is, you know, this very young, light skinned, middle class, you know, thin, able-bodied woman who wants to be a wife and a mother, that doesn't challenge power. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, to the anecdote that you just shared, there's a lot of gender policing that happens in, in feminism. And I don't even mean that necessarily from like a queer perspective, but just like how even like straight women perform gender in terms of like hair removal or beauty standards. Um, this idea that like you still need to look you know, quote unquote, respectable or nice or like still need to, you know, court the attraction of cis men. Um, white feminism has very much played to to that and for generations. Um, I think the way out is to not necessarily look again to ingratiate with power, like to in any way that you can find, you know, get increasingly comfortable with challenging and also, you know, critiquing within that gaze and why that is, you know, what what does it accomplish politically if a movement is very um, appeasing and in some ways desirable to the power structure, you know, whether we're talking about like hypothetical men or even just like, you know, power holders and in institutions, they want a very conventionally feminine cis, you know, white woman who like does her eyebrows and straightens her hair to be the face of quote unquote feminism. Um, and I think a lot comes up when you're talking about like anecdotes, you know, like that woman in Copenhagen, because uh, 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 when you start doing things like that, I feel like a, a significant thread gets pulled and that like a woman who is comfortable having facial hair, right? Clearly, she's not interested in an, in an array of beauty products. So clearly, she's not looking to like buy, you know, any sort of like acceptability or respectability or in some cases, like buy her empowerment, right? Like she's just comfortable in her gender as she is. And, you know, if we're thinking about like capitalism, patriarchy, racism, heterosexism, that is extremely threatening. You know, if you do not want to assimilate or ascend within these channels, um, that's why I think you have, you know, obviously men are going to say what they're going to say, but then, you know, women uphold this as well because they are threatened by it. Um, so again, I think not uh, a good overarching strategy is to not look to necessarily be appeasing, you know, to these power structures, to not necessarily try to be or try to like court them or be, you know, what they necessarily recognize. Um, and again, a counterexample to this is white feminism, <laughs> which has for, you know, 100 years in my own country. And arguably, you know, the the progress is very limited in my country. You know, it, it's it's really for a specific type of women and then women who aspire to be that woman. Mm -hmm. mm, absolutely. Um, and I want to talk about uh, women's representation in the media a little bit. And um, uh, one of the books I've been reading recently is uh, 
by the, the French feminist author, um, Lorraine Bastide, who actually has a, a few things in common with you. So she used to be a, an editor for Elle in France and uh, had been a, you know, a, a fashion writer for many years and launched a, a, a feminist podcast that became quite uh, quite famous in France called La Poudre. And oh, I've, in her I've book... heard of that podcast. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, yeah. I, as you were talking, uh, yeah, I was first... like, oh, I've heard of that from a, a friend of mine. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> she, yeah, no, she's. I, I, I feel like you would really, if you haven't listened, and since you speak French, I think you'd really enjoy her, her podcast. And she wrote a, she wrote a book called Présent, um, after doing uh, analysis of, uh, literally, women's representation in media. You know how many hours are women appearing, commenting on TV as compared to men, and and women are completely underrepresented. But you know even even at lower rates than than we expect, right? When you take account every every minute, and I think that's something that we've been seeing uh, throughout uh, the the past year and throughout the pandemic with a lot of the specialists and the, the you know expert doctors uh, that are kind of leading different countries' COVID response. Uh, you know, often that role falls on a man and. It's interesting because there's actually, when we look at countries or regions that have fared better throughout the pandemic, a lot of them had women as leaders, just thinking of Jacinda, you know, as, a, as an example. Um, and again, how can we, and I know we're kind of always coming back to that same issue, but um, what does it take for more women to be able to have that space in media? And I ask because you've spent a lot of time uh, in, in women's publications and you've spoken about the challenges that, that you face in wanting to uh, have kind of a more uh, uh, advanced, uh, uh, you know, approach to covering feminist issues or a more challenging approach to uh, covering feminist issues. So how can we how can we make these changes happen? And uh, have you seen a progress as well since you've left uh, the, uh, the the women's publication industry? Um, so a big part of the way that I think about this is not just getting women in, but then keeping there. And there's a lot of dynamics that happen, especially, you know, assuming women become parents or, you know, they have to um, take over a certain amount of like care work at some point, you know, whether it's like their parents or, you know, anyone else, siblings, what have you, um, women are relied on for care. And so there's a lot of data in my country on, you know, yeah, women excel in this certain white collar field, you know, up until the age of 34. And then the minute they have a child, then, you know, they're getting iced out of meetings, then, you know, they're not as up for many opportunities, then, you know, they're getting harassed about, you know, needing to pump or, you know, all these different dynamics. And so that part um, hasn't really been addressed, I think, in a holistic way in my country, because we don't have a lot of, uh, again, I said this at the top of the show, but, you know, we don't have a, a federal paid parental leave. We don't have, you know, subsidized or universal childcare. Like there's a lot of structural things that we don't have in the United States that in inhibits directly what we're talking about. And that's where I think like white feminism comes in. And in some ways, like, you know, praise on these women and what they're trying to accomplish. And they, again, they're being infused with these very individual narratives of how to overcome this oppression. When, you know, I think this is the role of our government. I think the fact that we don't have what a lot of other countries have <laughs> when it comes to basic childcare is very 
revealing. Um, in terms of progress, I mean, I, I haven't been in a newsroom since 2018. That's when I left to do this book. And, you know, that doesn't really sound like a long time, like we're at the top of 2021 now. But in digital media, that's a really long time. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, uh, exactly. My my career has always been on the digital side. And while I've worked at like legacy publications that have print legs, that's primarily not been my lane. I've always worked in digital. So I can't really say like between 2018 and 2021, a lot can change. I will say something that I'm very much in support of um, in my own country that's that's really taking off is the unionizing of a number of our most prominent outlets. Um, the New Yorker uh, this year um, actually did a walkout to protest uh, poor wages specifically. I mean, for a lot of the editorial staff, but, you know, they did um, a poll. This is online. You can read this. They did a poll of, you know, all their editorial staff. Not surprisingly, they found out that, you know, women were paid abysmally and that women of color were paid even more abysmally. And so they did a work stoppage. So to me, um, that indicates a lot of progress in terms of just media companies like thinking that way in terms of, you know, not getting a single black woman right to the top of a magazine and then calling it a day. They're thinking more about like a floor salary for everyone. They're thinking more about the uh, systematic ways in which all of them have been disadvantaged. And that I think is uh, a really tremendous step forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, kind of in the same vein, I want to ask you, so, you know, we've been in a, in a pandemic <clears throat> for a year where we're hitting the, the one year milestone. Um, what is one way you think women's situation has progressed and what is one way that women's situation has fallen backwards? Um. Let's see. I think I think about those two things in tandem, just in terms of like thinking about different women in my country. And so, you know, there's been a lot of national reporting in the U.S. on uh, women being burned out. And like they're really talking about often like, you know, white collar women who work outside the home. And because of the pandemic, you know, they are assuming they have children. They are effectively homeschooling. Right. Little kids. And then they're also, you know, doing all the domestic work, cooking all the food, <laughs> emptying the dishwasher, cleaning the floors, cleaning the bathrooms. Um, and so, you know, while uh, a number of women in my country, it's been reported, have been either, you know, losing their jobs um, or have essentially walked away from their jobs to take over like all this you know, just basic infrastructure of their home. Um, I think of that as both good and bad in the sense that I think that in the narrative of my own country, again, white feminism has been very good at selling this individualized understanding that is really divorced from care work. And in fact, I think like the deeper you go into white feminist discourse, care and, you know, all the labor that goes into a home, you know, whether you have children or not, it just doesn't exist. It's just not part of the economy. And yet, you know, so many feminisms and gender movements led by uh, Native people, Latinas, Black feminists, um, queer movements, they think about labor in completely different ways than white feminism does. And so I think of that as both good and bad in the sense that, you know, a, a number of women in my own country now don't have jobs um, and have had to leave them or have been laid off. But uh, this idea that now women 
in my country are confronting this very systemic like slight to this whole other vein of work that they do, I think I'm cautiously optimistic about in that now you have a number of women who, you know, probably in some instances have bought into a white feminist narrative and yet they're standing there with like, you know, their full email inbox and a dirty dishwasher and like screaming kids and, you know, like girl boss feminism isn't going to come in and save you. And and, and in fact, like it it was never designed to, (laughs) it was designed to be this. You're not going for a lunch at the wing. (laughs) No. (laughs) And like, again, you know, that's not what it, purported to be necessarily. It was about all these individual accolades. It wasn't about uh, systemic changes that could help with domestic labor, that could help with, you know, the labor of your home, the care of your children. So I'm hoping that will like reframe labor for a lot of women in my country and will change the way that they think about women's rights and also labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's such a good point. And then I want to ask you my favorite question to ask uh, my my guests on the show. And feel free to also rephrase the question. I've had that happen and that's that's always fun. So what do you wish women would do more of? I wish women um, in, I'll, I'll narrow this to my own country because I don't think I quite have the the fluency to say this internationally, but I wish women in my own country would think more collectively about the ways that they've been disadvantaged um, rather than going inward, you know, with their oppression or the ways in which they've been discriminated against or, you know, violated. Um, uh, Something I learned uh, very, very deeply in doing the research for this book is that the collective is incredibly powerful. And especially when I consider, you know, movements like Me Too, for instance, we see this pattern again and again, where it's like, you know, if if somebody has violated you in these white collar settings, chances are it was not just you. Like this is a pattern. This is a thing they do. There have been other victims before you. There will be victims after you. And so to not think about oppression as this, you know, dragon that you have to go out and slay by yourself, you know, with this like huge cup of coffee and like, you know, a sword <laughs> um, <laughs> to to think more about, OK, this has happened to me. Therefore, it's probably happened to other people. Um, and to think about that, you know, not across just assault, although I think that's that's been very powerful historically as well. But across, um, you know, poor wages, across, you know, lack of paid parental leave, across um, wage discrimination, across pregnancy discrimination. I really wish women in my own country would think more collectively about the ways that that um, patriarchy has in some ways siloed them from each other. That it, it's so interesting you say that, and it makes me think of, you know, a lot of women in, I mean, I, I worked in a, in a corporate workplace for a long time and um, women who will experience um, just discrimination or some type of, you know, uh, abusive behavior by a colleague or superior. And it's always dealt with in silence. And obviously, you know, there'll be an NDA that's signed and then the toxic, you know, culture perpetuates itself and the, the problems never address, right? And it's, I think it's our responsibility as women to step up and be able to 
uh, truly address it for the collective and not for our own, own, just our own personal situation. Which, you know, they don't want us to do. <laughs> like there's, I, I get into this in my book, but I think that's where like, uh, power has been so successful in denigrating women and not just women, but, you know, it is a specific pattern to patriarchy in terms of taking us away from one another. So what happened to you is something incredibly shameful that you must carry alone. Like you just said, you're put, um, you know, considering your circumstances an NDA may, may be put in front of you and the threats are always personal. It's always like, if you you know are vocal about this you will lose standing in the company you won't have a job anymore they threaten you know your economic security in some ways they might threaten your family they might threaten your children you know and it's like a very um i think toxic like you just said is a really good word for it but i think the fact that you're violated and then met with threats like that i think indicates a lot of what they're ultimately afraid of which is you connecting with other women, non-binary people who have had those similar experiences and then building a narrative across that that encompasses everybody. Because we've seen now, you know, that can in some ways challenge this power and it is what they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we shall do more of that in the in the months to come. Thank you so much, Koa. This was really enlightening. And I invite everybody to pick up a copy of your book if they haven't read it already. Um, and yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to see what's next for you. And hopefully we connect again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And again, you know, Montreal is one of my favorite cities just ever. So maybe I can see you in person one day in the distant future when I get back and and once we're able to you know travel across the border again <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much for having me Ava I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation and if you did as always don't forget to subscribe rate and give us a review wherever that is possible Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brandis Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. Yeah.